House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. And so now we've got um, the one and only Richard Carrier. Thank you for being here. Oh, happy to be here. So, Richard, um, uh, what what's going on in the world? In the whole world? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm sure folks can find the news on that that's topic. Um, if, if you mean for myself, like what I'm up to uh, lately, um, I'm actually trying to finish a shorter pop market version of my academic monograph. Um, the academic book, of course, the 2014 on the historicity of Jesus, uh, which I suppose we'll talk about today. But um, but I'm trying to like pare it down into simpler arguments, uh, less pages, no footnotes. Um and uh, publish that, and that's going to be Jesus from Outer Space. So that that will be coming out hopefully before the end of this year. So when you were on the show last, last summer, um, I think we got the most uh, negative comments about your appearance, mostly from people who <laughs> largely disagreed with everything you said. Of course. Um, or we also got negative comments about Al and I saying, why would a respected... Uh, scholar like Richard Carrier go on this goofy conspiracy show. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. So I guess I, I guess some people liked it, some people didn't, and they each had their own reasons. Um, yeah. But well, I, funny. I have to say, like uh, especially because in this whole issue of whether Jesus existed or not, um, there is kind of this assumption because of all of these you know sort of crank versions of this theory. Uh, that it's all a conspiracy theory. So it, it fits into the, the, the orbit of what you talk about. But at the same time, I'm mostly debunking the conspiracy theory versions of this argument, uh, which is also in your orbit. So I think I fit right in, really. Yeah, so I, I, I didn't understand why they thought Al and I were conspiracy cranks. Um, right. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's weird. Um. <laughs> well, I wonder if those were some of my readers who, like, uh, don't go, right? Like, came yeah. over to you and, and, and then have the wrong reaction to uh, your promotional stuff, I guess. I don't know. Mm. Um, so I, I want to start with something, and this is, so I, I'm looking at the reviews, both of the radio show you did with us last time and of your excellent book on the historicity of Jesus, and I'm looking at the most negative reviews, and I want to just read very shortened version ah, ah, of them excellent. and just give you the opportunity to respond. Of course. Um, so, so here's here's one on Amazon. So one star. This person, um, not a verified purchase either. Um, <laughs> Wait, are, are these reviews of my book or these are the reviews reviews of the book? So we'll okay, start gotcha, with that. Gotcha. All right, right. Okay, it's very hard for me to fathom just how dumb atheists are. Wow, SMH. <laughs> that's the review. Yeah, that's the review. Okay, I yeah, I didn't notice that. I, you know, it's been a while since I've looked at the reviews there. I did reply to some of them, like, years ago, like back in 2014 and 2015. Uh, I haven't kept up with uh, with what other weird stuff is getting published there, though. Um, yeah, I mean, I get it, too, where I, I'm regularly accused of being a uh, deep state agent or on the payroll of the government or something like that. <laughs> All right, yeah. Um <laughs> Uh, negative review number two, one star. Um, I am no rocket scientist. The grammar was hard to follow for us non-rocket scientists. That's um, their review. 
Yeah, so I guess I guess they're going to be very excited that you're, that you're coming out with a popular press version of the book. I suppose so. I you know I find that interesting that the way those things kind of operate. That you know, of course, that's a one star review of the whole book on Amazon, mm-hmm. and what they're criticizing it for is being what it is, which is a academic peer reviewed academic monograph, <laughs> which is not a valid reason to give it a one give it one star. But uh, you know, people do what they do. And that's, I find that really strange because I find your writing really easy to read and your your talks are incredibly um, easy to follow. Um, so it's maybe this right. person is yeah, re- I, a really bad rocket scientist, I think. <laughs> and that's, that's actually part of – I actually get criticism for that from the academic side um, where because I actually try to frame my wording and my use of language in more colloquial terms of, of ordinary people – because I want to hit both audiences, both academics and regular folk. Um, and so I speak like regular people do. I use words like sucks, and I use contractions. You know? <laughs> uh, and, and I have like sort of stuffy elitist academics will c- criticize me for that. When, when, I, um, when I finished my dissertation, my dissertation advisor at Columbia University said, yeah, okay, it's good to go, uh, but you, you really have to remove all the contractions because that's very unprofessional. Mm-hmm. Like, contractions, you mean like it's. And there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, okay, uh, so I did that, and then of course when I published the dissertation uh, as a book, I put all the contractions back in. Um, so, <laughs> but that illustrates the difference. Like you get weird critiques from both sides. You can't win either way. But my my intention is to try and be readable as much as possible. I, I consider it kind of like my biggest failures are when I'm not clear enough, when I haven't written uh, stuff that people can grasp, ordinary folk can grasp. Um, so I aim to get better and better at doing that. And you're right. Like even uh, Historicity of Jesus has a lot of that, although it is packed with a lot of footnotes. Uh, that's a bit spooky to some folk. When do you, well, uh, you, you told us uh, before you came on that you're working on the more popular press version of that book. When, when do you expect that to come out? Well, it was supposed to be out last year, so um, just FYI, that seems to see how reliable my predictions are. <laughs> um, uh, so a lot's been going on in my life, so it's been difficult to keep up with it, so to finish it. I'm, I'm close, so uh, my intention is to get it out before the end of this year, and I, I think I can hit that target now. Okay, good. So we should be on the lookout for that. Okay, so next review, one star, verified purchase. Um, a lot of exclamation points here. Um, this is absolutely the last atheist book I will ever read, exclamation point. And then this is about 2,000 words, so I'll, I'll get to the uh, – oh. I'll skip to the chase here. Excellent. And this is where it gets weird. Uh, to give you the bottom line up front, none of this has convinced me to abandon my Christian faith. I'm a lifelong Christian, a Bible-thumping Baptist fundamentalist, um, um, but I'm not going to give up my faith. Quite the opposite, in fact. I am one of the few Christians who will read on the history of Jesus, word for word, cover to cover. I have to give Carrier credit. It's a good book. This is the first time that I've seen so much of the Jesus scholarship and evidence gathered in one book, and Carrier analyzes it all in painstaking detail. The man is thorough. But I don't agree with his conclusions. So, so they are. So I guess uh, one star because you're thorough and um, you have all the evidence gathered in one place. But he doesn't agree with your conclusion. 
Correct, yeah. This illustrates my point earlier, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can keep reading. It's like 10,000 more words of this. So, yeah. Um, it, it's, I, 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 you know, the way I would see this, and I want to get your comment, is that um, the people who need to be convinced the most are the most least likely to be convinced. Well, uh, I suppose, I, I, I think uh, maybe we're using the wrong categories. I don't really think uh, the historicity of Jesus that book wasn't isn't really written for Christians, and its goal is not to like dissuade Christians from being Christians. I have other books that will do that uh, that presume the historicity of Jesus. Um, so I have a whole book, Why I'm Not a Christian. If you if you're a Christian, and you want your faith challenged. Read Why I Am Not a Christian, and that book accepts the historicity of Jesus. It just assumes that that's the case, and still shows that the religion doesn't follow. Whereas the historicity of Jesus, like you have to already be out of the faith to even contemplate the possibility that the conclusion is true, right? Like your, your dogmatic resistance to that is going to be so extreme, and the arguments for it are uh, ambiguous. I, I don't, I don't come to a really definite conclusion in the book, and people don't realize like I come to maybe a one in three chance that Jesus existed, which is you know respectable probability. It's just below fifty percent is what freaks everybody out. Um, but it's 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 weak relative to, for example, arguments we can make against the resurrection of Jesus, which you can make really strong, effective arguments against that. Like you should not believe that. That's that's an example of where we can really make good case, and most mainstream scholars would agree uh, with that. That we can make a really good case that you just really can't believe that Jesus rose from the dead from the kind of evidence we have. So I think historicity of Jesus, the target audience are people who are already out of the faith and are willing to contemplate different theories of the origins of Christianity. So it's really a debate among atheists. Um, and Raphael Latastra published a book making that point exactly. This is really a debate among atheists. Uh, and so the, the weird thing is, is like when atheists are adamantly against the idea that maybe Jesus didn't exist, um, that's what's kind of startling, because they don't have an investment really uh, in there being a Jesus. So how would you uh, compare the history of Jesus to, say, the historicity of, of other biblical characters like Moses or Noah um, or, or other figures like that? Well, that's interesting because, you know, in the 70s, uh, Thomas Thompson published his dissertation and book arguing that uh, all of those are, are mythical. Uh, Moses and the patriarchs were mythical people. They're the same kind of mythical people as Gilgamesh and, uh, you know, and Hercules, and they, they, serve, and they serve the same role. Uh, basically, the Old Testament is basically the Israelite mythologies. It's the same kind of mythology you find in Homer and in Sumerians and uh, Chinese ancient mythology and so on. Um, and he had a really good case, uh, and he was vilified and attacked and rejected even by mainstream secular scholars. But 20 years, fast forward 20 years, it's now the mainstream agreement. That pretty much mainstream scholars agree he was right, that, that we can't establish the historicity of any of those, those figures, uh, and that the stories told about them are definitely mythical and were written by people who didn't even know, live in or know the times in which they're portrayed. Uh, so that's become basically mainstream. Um, anybody who wants to catch up on that can read The Bible Unearthed by uh, Finkelstein and Silberman, which is a good survey of uh, contemporary consensus in Old Testament studies. So basically in my book, I, I'm now in the role of Thomas Thompson arguing, well, we can actually probably say the same thing about Jesus. Thomas Thompson himself has said the same thing about Jesus. Uh, and I published my book in 2014, so it's only been, you know, six years now. Uh, so let's see, 20 years from now, we'll see where we are uh, with that. But of course, scholars have to actually read the book before they can actually evaluate it properly. So do, where would you put the burden of proof? I mean, do, is the burden of proof on you to show that Jesus doesn't exist? Or do people have the burden of proof when they claim that Jesus does? 
I mean, who uh, who who has to make their case? Right, exactly. I I specifically talk about this in my earlier book, Proving History, which is about the methodology, uh, methodology in general for historians, but also specifically in Jesus studies. Uh, my argument is that yeah, I I bear the burden of making this case because the consensus has come to the conclusion that there was at least some sort of mundane Jesus. He wasn't the Jesus of the Gospels, but he was some other figure, and they debate what that figure was. We have a camp who argues for Jesus was a warlike zealot and got whitewashed as a pacifist afterward. We have, uh, you know, the apocalyptic prophet camp. We have the, you know, the Galilean rabbi camp and this, uh, the magic, the, the wizard camp, like uh, the, the sort of, um, you know, local huckster version of things, the David Koresh version of things. There are all these different competing versions of what the real Jesus was and that the gospels are the mythology about this, the legends about this person. Um, and that's, that's been based on presumably some sort of basis of argument, uh, basis of evidence. So, so if I'm going to challenge that, I have to I have to actually go in and show. I bear the burden of showing that uh, that consensus is ill-formed, that the evidence that they base it on doesn't exist or is weak. Um, I have to show that. I actually bear that burden, and that's what the point of the book is. Is uh, especially proving history. Proving history first shows that the basis of the consensus is ill-formed, that, that it's not based on sound methodology. Uh, and then on the historicity of Jesus goes, well, let's, now let's relook at the evidence. If, if that consensus isn't well-formed, what does happen when we look at the evidence that there is and use a proper method, a method that actually works, uh, what do we get? And then that, that's what on the historicity of Jesus is. And so I think anyone who wants to challenge the historicity of Jesus does bear the burden of making the case, uh, or at least referring someone to the case, which is why I wrote on the historicity of Jesus, so there would be a book that someone could refer to, that past peer review is an actual proper academic monograph arguing this, um, and that, that's where you would start. And so the debate has to start there. Uh, I, I don't think you can go around insisting that the burden is on you to prove Jesus existed. Well, no, you can just cite the consensus and, and walk away in most cases. Uh, you can't just assume the consensus is ill-formed. That has to be proved, uh, and that's one of the things that I accomplished. Well, let me make an argument that disagrees with you, but that's in maybe in your favor. Um, I think scientific consensuses matter when they're based on evidence. Right. And it, 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 it hasn't always seemed clear to me, and you make, I think you make the case pretty good, that, that there is a consensus by the appropriate scholars, but it, there doesn't seem to be um, a lot of underlying evidence um, belying that consensus. So in that case, isn't the burden on them to, to show why they, they believe that Jesus existed? I would say so only after you've met the burden of showing that they, their consensus is not based on evidence. Okay. Um, so, you know, it's like if someone presents you with the consensus of the thing, you, you can't just assume that that consensus is ill-formed. Someone who's claiming that it is does bear the burden of showing that it is. Now, once they've done that, now now the ball's in, in the air and it's open to anybody, so now you've got to relook at the evidence. Um, and so the burden falls on either side uh, to prove their position. Okay. All right, good. So I want to read this this final review of your book on Amazon. Um, well, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll read two. Um, so first, uh, Disclosure. My one-star rating is because of the book's subtitle. Um, I did not buy or read the book. That's the review. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey, they don't even explain? Why? No, and then and then the title of the one star review is a book's subtitle is important. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess so. <laughs> okay. Wow. 
Uh, that's weird, because I don't know what... Are they complaining that it's too soft? Or that it's too hard, a subtitle? Well, when I, when I write I, books, I try not to have subtitles. Well, so I, I guess that's, this is why. Yeah, I didn't pick... <laughs> I didn't pick the subtitle, actually. That isn't mine. That was the publisher. Yeah. Um, so the publisher wanted that there to soften the assertion of the title. So they're saying that this is a proposal rather than claiming that the field has proven this. Um, but, you know, I agree with the concept, uh, and I was fine with the subtitle. But that, that's that's a strange thing because they were trying to make it the, – the point is they're trying to make it look like this is just a proposal that you should consider rather than we're, we're affirming that this is the case. And I think that, I mean, that's completely fair. Uh, but why someone would object to it is is very odd. Uh, the only time I run into people who do object to it is they think it's too soft. They said, why did you put might in the title? Or wait, what is it? I can't remember the exact wording. Yes, why did you put might in the title? And it's like, well, I, you know, I tell the story unless that was the publisher's choice. And it makes sense. You know, We haven't convinced the consensus yet. This is just a proposal. It's passed through peer review. It's here to start the argument. Uh, let's talk about the contents of the book. I mean, that was the point of it. Um, so usually it's hardcore mythicists who have a problem with the title, um, not usually the hardcore historicists. Oh, okay. Okay, final final bad review, and we'll move on to more substantive stuff. Uh, <laughs> one star, um, and the title is I Read, I Don't Believe. And it says, uh, this is biased. The writer was never a theologian. He never understands the Bible correctly. And this book is just for learning how atheists think. I am a Catholic, and I would not put my salvation on the line believing in this author. Do, do they give any examples of how I don't understand the Bible correctly? Uh, no. That, that was the okay. entirety of the review. Okay. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> so, Well, I, I mean, so let me just ask you, are you asking readers to put their salvation in your hands? <laughs> Ah, well, of course, if you think anything that might lead you to doubt the dogmas of your religion will put your salvation in danger, then obviously you're going to think that. But that's the sort of circular reasoning that traps everyone in every faith and conspiracy theory as well, right? Uh, is, is Even challenging your belief is dangerous because you've resolved that your belief is necessary to your salvation. Uh, it, that's a bad situation to be in. You probably want to avoid religions that put you in that position. So I've been watching um, a lot of the History Channel and both the Smithsonian Channel lately, and, the, and they both do a lot of um, conspiracy and mythology, but they often present it as if it's history and, and fact. Um, so I watched a show about the Spear of Destiny. Ah, yes. And they said that the spear was used to stab Jesus um, in the chest while he was on the cross, and now the spear has magic powers. And they went about testing the spear for magic powers. Where did they get this one? Like, as I've heard it, I've heard someone claims they have it, and I, I don't know where it comes from or what it is. Well, apparently they had. Well, they say it's on display in uh, in Austria, and there's a, a, another myth attached to that. In fact, they started the show with a myth saying Hitler, when he was a young boy, came came to this museum, saw the spear, and was immediately inspired to uh, want to take over the world uh, by the <laughs> well, spear. Hitler was trying to acquire the spear of destiny, I, I, but I guess if he was ruling Austria for a few years, I guess he didn't go loot that museum? Or <laughs> Well, after five minutes of, of talking about how Hitler had, had visited the spear in the museum, they then said, well, there's actually no proof or evidence suggesting that any of what we just told you was true in the least. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh dear, oh dear. Yes. So I said, "Good job, Smithsonian." <laughs> right. <laughs> well, at least they said that. I'll give them that at least. Um, yeah, I find these fascinating. These these legends and myths that arise, and they they illustrate how people make stuff up, and then a lot of people really believe this stuff. And this is in a day and age of uh, universal literacy, archives, photographs, you know, huge access to records and so on, um, age of science uh, and skepticism and so on. And people still will believe that the spear of destiny, this spear, actually is the spear that was used to stab Jesus, even though there's no evidence to establish that provenance at all. Um, if that's the case now, just think how easy it would be to believe just about anything that was made up in the first century, for example, where the, you don't have universal literacy, you don't have access to all this evidence, you don't have this mindset of skepticism and science, uh, at least among the people who are falling for it. Yeah, I, th- I think some of the other shows that I've watched, too, they take a lot of this as fact. So I, I saw also on the Smithsonian the hunt for the Ark of the Covenant. Um, right. and then they, and they take it, you know, at face value, the biblical accounts of this saying, yeah, right. this, this actually houses these tablets written by God and, and it was brought down by Moses and, and they don't even seem to discuss the scholarly work on, on the topic or at least not the consensus anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Ethiopia claims to have it as far as I recall. Yeah. But you can't go in and see it. Right. <laughs> Much less uh, established where it comes from or its validity or anything. Yeah, so they have a church there, and I forget the name of it, but I guess they, they, they've claimed to have had it for some number of decades, if not longer, and, and they have a monk who, who keeps uh, watch over it, but no one's ever allowed to see it, and if you question them about it, they won't tell you anything. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. But they got a lot of visitors to the church, so. <laughs> yep. Yes, indeed. Um, so uh, maybe two months ago, Al and I had on as a guest on this program um, an author who had been, you know, working on films and books and doing expeditions in the Middle East where they claim to have found. You don't uh, need the, Giacomo Povici, do you? No, no. Al will have to fill, fill in the name. Um, All right. Um, who, who claims to have found uh, uh, the burial place of Jesus? That's or the, 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 James the, Tabor? Who was it, Al? Oh, I'm just trying to think. That was, no, was it Tabor? Maybe it was. It would either be Tabor or Giacobovici. They, they often work together, making the same argument. Um, I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, I have I have several <laughs> blog articles. If people are interested in this, um, you can go to richardcarrier.info.info and in the search and thing enter Tomb of Jesus, and I have several articles on. Uh, the absurdity of this stuff. I, I find I find Giacobovici particularly irritating. Uh, he's really comes across as a really con artist. He's really pushing this stuff for um, basically to sell his documentaries. I mean, do you, do you, so I mean, obviously, if 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 readers side with you that historicity of Jesus is in doubt, then, then none of this is going to make any sense. But uh, I guess a question I would put to you is how. Um, how would these people even go about finding, you know, anything, assuming Jesus was real, um, anything having to do with this person 2,000 years after the fact? Yeah, I mean, you would think any grave he's in, it, it, you can't DNA type him because you don't have his DNA. You, how, would you, how would you even identify 
I mean, we may have dug, literally may have already dug up the body of Jesus and not even know it because we would, it would the grave would it might have the name on it, but it's a common name. Uh, even J Jesus Ben Joseph, Jesus son of Joseph, was super common uh, uh, list of names. So, um, so that, that there's when we have. By the way, tons of these. Uh, there was one cluster. What they usually do is it's name clusters. So they try to find a cluster of names that is improbable unless it's the family of Jesus. So they want to find a bunch of graves together that have all the names that are associated with Jesus and not too many names that are unfamiliar. Um, and then so they can do some sort of math to try and argue that, the, that it's improbable that this is a, a random conglomeration. It's got to be the family of Jesus. The math never works out. It always gets debunked by actual, you know, mathematicians look at it and go, no, no, your statistics are... Clusters. Oh, look, it looks like there's a bunch of the names associated with Jesus. Um, but when you do the stats on it, it, it it's that can happen by accident quite easily. So it's because these are all common names, basically. Uh, and if you just choose to ignore all the names that are in the cluster that don't align with Jesus, of course, you can make the evidence fit anything you want. Uh, and then this happened again, uh, the Talpiot tomb, which is the most recent, that's the Giacobovici uh, efforts. Um, and then they're trying to prove that the James ossuary came from there to try and beef up the name cluster, as it were. So there's a lot of um, shenanigans and sort of skipping steps of logic to try and, well, if you just assume X, Y, and Z, then we have all this evidence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but let's get back to the X, Y, and Z that you're just assuming, you're just skipping past without, you know, you don't have any strong evidence for. Uh, but that's what's been going on, and I, I do write about this on my blog for people who are interested in that. And there are other scholars who've written about it. There's whole books on um, the debunking of this theory. So a lot of your work has to do with looking at the myth the myths that were going on and the other religions that were going on 2,000 years ago and, you know, prior to Christianity. Um, how different is Christianity from these other religions that were going on um, at that place at that time? I mean, is it just another offshoot of what people were thinking about and talking about, or is it indeed something very different? It's both in the same way all of them are as well. So, uh, so to unpack that, to explain what I mean, is you can look at all these other mystery religions. Um, Mithraism arose around the same time as Christianity, uh, so they probably didn't influence each other, but they show similar development and similar features. But Mithraism uh, differs from Christianity insofar as Mithraism takes this mystery religion concept and merges it with Persian religion. And you have Osiris cult that takes this mystery religion concept and merges it with Egyptian religion. And you've got uh, Adonis cult uh, takes this mystery religion concept and merges it with Syrian uh, religion and culture. Uh, so all of the similarities you can see across all these different ones. There's many different mystery cults. I, I talk about this in on the historicity of Jesus with scholarship and citation and evidence. Um, I've got a few blog articles about it as well. Um, so you can look at all these similarities that are similarities across all these religions. It's very clear that Christianity was modeled to be just like one of these mystery religions. It has a lot of the same features. It accomplishes a lot of the same goals. But what's different, if you look at it, what is different and, let's say, unique about Christianity, all of it, you could just make a list, it all comes from Judaism. So it's it's because this is a Jewish version of the mystery religion. So you could do the same thing with Mithraism. Like, what, 
what is unique about Mithraism, what is different about Mithraism, you make a list, it, oh, it all comes from Persian Zoroastrianism. Uh, you do the same thing with Osiris. Oh, it all comes from, all the unique, different stuff comes from Egyptian religion. So you do the same thing. So it, it has both similarities and differences on purpose, the same way all these other mystery religions did, which is just more evidence that Christianity fits right into this complex. It was this, this fashionable thing to do, is to create savior cults. Like, that was just all the rage at the time. And so every... Every sort of uh, new, exciting foreign cultural religion that entered the Roman Empire created its own version of this mystery religion to market it uh, on the religious market at the time. And so everybody had these you know, mystery religions slash savior cults going on, and they were very popular. So finally, when, when uh, a fringe sect of Jews created one of their own, um, it's Christianity. And, and in fact, you could have, if you were a scholar, even back then, if you were a scholar of religion, and in the first century BC, before Christianity came out, and someone were to come to you and say, hey, you know all these mystery religions, all these savior cults, you know what they have in common and what they have in different and so on. And they're like, yeah, I know a lot about this. What if the Jews made up one? What would it look like? And this scholar could write down, basically fully describe Christianity before it even existed, simply by taking Judaism and merging it with uh, uh, the mystery, uh, mystery cult slash savior god motifs, he, so that, that, that just tells you that it fits right into type. It's exactly the kind of thing you would expect to arise uh, in, in the Roman Empire at that time. So was this sort of a, this was sort of a big deal at the time where it wasn't just, oh, we have a god or a set of gods, but people were coming up with saviors, someone who would lead them to the afterlife. Specifically, um, yeah. The, one, many unique features of the mystery religion motif that changed religion in the ancient world. Religion began, like, er, you go way, way back. Uh, religion was communal. It was, you would do, you do rituals for the community. Um, the resurrection concepts were all about the crops and agricultural cycles. And it wasn't something you chose to belong to or not. You, you were just either in the community or not. You either participated in the rituals or you didn't. Uh, it was, like, the idea of, like, not believing it was not even really a big issue. It was just, that's how the function was. But when you get, uh, basically, uh, before Alexander the Great, but especially after Alexander the Great's influence uh, spread this stuff, but even uh, when you get the rise of the Greek uh, city-states, so you're looking about 7th century BC, maybe 8th century at the earliest, you get this rise of these new kind of participatory sort of citizenship religions where you would you would become a member, you would join the religion, you would become an initiate, you would in, be initiated into the religion. The initiation was often a baptism, uh, and your membership was confirmed on a weekly or monthly basis through uh, the, the equivalent of a Eucharist, a sort of communal meal, the sort of sacred meal you would have that would merge you with the God and the concept of the God. Uh, and this would give you salvation in the afterlife for the individual, not for the community. Um, now, of course, the idea was the whole community would join, but the salvation now is imagined as an individual salvation. And all these resurrection stories were retooled and rethought from agricultural metaphors to metaphors for the salvation of the individual, whether it's a resurrection or something equivalent. Uh, and so, do you, do, do, that so do you think that the change was, was happening because there was an economic change at the time? So you go from sort of, uh, you know, collective agrarian societies to societies where people are more specialized in, in, in what they're doing um, as professions? Well, I mean, lots of scholars have looked at this, and there's still debate as to why this happened when it did. I mean, my, my suspicion is uh, that it has more to do with political structure um, mm. than economics, uh, because it, it the stuff arises from the Greeks right when the Greeks are developing democracy and the concept of city-states with individual rights, 
Um, and so this idea of um, the, the the idea of the you know the isolated community who joins together and swears allegiance and becomes their own uh, you know political unit um, and through democracy as well uh, creates a more uh, a more fo- more focus on the individual right because if you're if you're a democracy what you're saying is is that every person's vote counts well in this case you know certain men uh, men of certain wealth usually the, the early democracies were and not everyone got a vote, but the, the concept was there, the idea that, that every individual makes his own judgment and his own opinion and contributes to the society. Uh, and so this trend towards individualism, so you go from communal resurrection ideas to individual resurrection ideas or salvation ideas and so on. Um, that's I think it, ta- it tracks the politics more than anything. And when you get towards uh, what's, what usually was originally henotheism, this idea that there's a supreme god but a bunch of other gods below, whether you call those gods demons and angels or gods doesn't matter. It's the same thing. It's they, they have the same roles and uh, same supernatural powers and so on. So basically, you know, Judaism was really polytheism, except that they just didn't call all the other gods gods, <laughs> but they accepted like there's an angel of the weather and there's a you know an angel of uh, of death and there's an the different angels who had different domains, just as the gods in the polytheistic pantheons had roles. But this shifted towards monotheism actually under Christianity and then Christian dominance of the Roman Empire, where you had this unified religion that everyone had to hear, adhere to and reject all others, that tracks the, the rise of centralized power and fascism in the Roman Empire, where you have a single ruler, single un- unified land, everybody has to get behind that one thing and reject all others. The religion then tracks the political structure. So you get this basically medieval monotheism is born out of this sort of fascistic tendency of the centralized power of the Roman Empire, um, which is the exact opposite of the democracies out of which the Roman Empire grew. Uh, and so I think, I think politics explains changes in religion more than economics. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that argument makes perfect sense. I mean, once people started to recognize individual rights, then, then it would make sense that people would be more interested in their own salvation rather than others. I mean, I've been watching a lot of uh, documentaries on the same channels I was just making fun of, so maybe I should find a different channel to watch. Um, but I was watching about, you know, Stonehenge and what were people doing back then, and, and it seems like these were very collectivist societies. Yeah, um, actually, that, that reminds me of something you just said. Um, so you said that they would be more interested in their own salvation. I mean, that's not entirely true. They would be interested in saving other people, too, their, their fellow citizens. Um, but one of the features of this rise of Greek democracies was persuasion was now more important than authoritarianism. So if you, through democracies, you, if you wanted to change policy, you had to persuade people. And now you have to persuade people. Now you have to deal with evidence, you have to deal with argument, you have to deal with essentially evangelism for your policy. That gets tracked into religions where these religions, all these mystery cults, were evangelistic. They went out and tried to persuade people to join. And so that's another feature of this that you see in Christianity, right? It's the exact same thing happening the same way, and it's sort of a a relic from the democratic origins of this religion concept. Um, And then, of course, you know, it becomes totalitarian later once it actually acquires imperial power. Uh, And so, um, so that's, that's, again, I think, uh, even even when you look at it from that lens, it's still, it's the political background that kind of explains that. So, one thing that I always think about with religion is that it, it, it has a lot of parallels with conspiracy theory, and I think in an evolutionary sense, in that the ones that tend to get the most followers are the ones that have certain characteristics, like 
you know, unfalsifiable, can't be disproved, um, could mean almost anything, could, could allow believers <laughs> to um, mold it in any way, no matter what facts are thrown at them. Uh, I mean, do, yeah, you, okay. do, do you see those same sort of things with, with the beliefs that you deal with? Yeah, yeah, I think that's... I, I agree. I think there there's definitely a similarity there, and it's this. I suspect it's the same cognitive defects in the design of our brains that lead to both, uh, in a way. And, and for many people, conspiracy theories become their religion. Uh, so, yeah, I, I do think there is there are definite parallels there, and I, I think you're apt to notice that. Because I was sort of thinking, you know, like w- certain religions have gained gained ground over time, but many just fizzle off and die. What's the difference between those? And I and I think if, you know, if you have certain characteristics in your religion, such as we're not going to go out and evangelize and get more members, I mean, you're going to die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So you, so we're always going to be stuck with religious people knocking on our doors trying to get us <laughs> to join. There's no escape from this. Yes, yes, yes. Right. Well, it's the same way we see in politics. One of the things I'm noticing is in as governments, or as put it this way, as societies become more secularized, um, religion is sort of becoming more scrambled and less in control of its followers. Um, politics is sort of replacing religion in its social functions. So you have, you have, for example, you have the alt right. Uh, recruiting people on the internet. There's evangelism for this ideology, and the ideology shares a lot of similarities. It has its own mythology, it has its own uh, dogmas, uh, it has its own sort of apocalyptic worldview. Um, has this idea about hey, this is gonna here's our salvation is based on our policy proposals, you know, and people argue politics the same way they used to argue religion uh, in the same sort of often irrational and histrionic ways, uh, I, and I think it, it's even like the way pe- the reasons people congregate together, um, where they find their shared values, it's now coming out of political persuasions, political ideologies, rather than religion, or more and more of the case, I should say. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the extent that I think these political ideologies are slowly replacing these supernatural religions, and so we're just replacing one religion with another. But because people are so used to calling supernaturalist views religion. I don't think they recognize or see that these political ideologies, which are not inherently supernaturalist, uh, are just like religion. They're just a new religion. Um, and, and I think that's kind of dangerous, because if you've already armed yourself against uh, the threat of supernaturalist worldviews so that you are skeptical of religion, if you don't recognize that political ideologies are religions, you you will be more susceptible to them. You won't be skeptical of them. You won't apply the same skepticism to them that you apply to the supernaturalist worldviews. And this makes people very persuadable and easily sucked into these, you know, dogmatic positions. No, I, I certainly agree with that. And, you know, as a person who does a lot of polling on this, you find that people are very resistant to new information and they don't want to change their minds no matter what happens. And they're sort yeah. of stuck with their own tribe uh, whether it's political or not, and, and, and they get, you know, not everyone is ideological in the way that we think about it, but many people are, are there's enough people who are yeah. truly ideological um, that causes problems, and, and yeah. those people tend to be the loudest, too. 
Right, and just like traditional religions, you've got sort of the nominal Christians, but then you've got these Christian fanatics, right? You've got the the head in the sand Christians who won't debate because they're scared that the, the, you'll convince them and they'll lose their faith and therefore burn in hell or something. And then you have the Christians who are like angry and will try to engage you because you're a threat to their uh, their religion and to other people. So you, you find all the same characters in both groups, really. Um, so let me ask you, since we're on the topic, so how would you guard yourself against that so um you know you obviously have your own political views you're you're not a religious person how do you develop um social views and political views that aren't driven by ideology but instead are driven by um some other thing yeah i mean you have to commit to respect for evidence and commit to the, the admission that you are probably wrong about some things and the game the trick the tactic, the strategy is to figure out which those, which things those are and how would you tell. So if you take seriously this question, how would I know whether a belief I have is true or false? Um, and then say this, okay, let's say you come up with this answer to that question. Does that answer actually work? Like apply it to other things and say like, well, actually, no, that could easily, if I believe that, it could easily trap me in other false beliefs. Certainly look at your opponents. Like are they using the same list of uh, you know defenses and yet they're trapped in, in what you believe is a false belief clearly there's something wrong with that methodology so you got to like work it out like what is what methodology would help you I mean honestly evidence-based reasoning commitment to uh, logic uh, and meaning avoiding fallacies and that means really detecting when you yourself are relying on fallacies um, really taking seriously when when you can't find evidence like you, especially if you thought you were told stuff and then you go to try and fact check it and it turns out not to be true or you can't find support for it, take that seriously. Like you have to commit to it as a value decision that that, that actually should change your mind about something. Like you should become more skeptical or more agnostic about the thing um, or even change your mind outright based on where the evidence goes. So you have to have this, you basically have to make evidentialism your religion. Uh, and I think uh, that is that is the only uh, escape the only cure uh, for this problem, and it does require installing new methods and new ways of thinking. You can't rely on gut reaction. You can't rely on intuition, because gut feelings and intuition are built-in, evolved features of our brain, and we know scientifically that those are very unreliable. So you know that your innate abilities to understand things are flawed, which means you you know you have to go develop and install sort of a software patch, uh, scientific method, logical reasoning, critical thinking. Um, you have to install these things and then actually apply them in every aspect of your life. And, and you, if you treat that as your religion, uh, I think you'll be much more capable of switching your beliefs according to where the evidence tends rather than being trapped in an ideological hall of mirrors, as it were. Uh, do you think most people are doing that? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would yeah. say most people don't even know they're supposed to, um, to, yeah. to be honest. Like, I, we all end up in our own little bubbles where we talk to lots of people who know all about philosophy and epistemology and, and log what, what a logical fallacy is, for example. Even just knowing that that's as a thing and what it is, much less knowing logical fallacies, much less, even less, knowing how to detect them in yourself. Um, we're not teaching this. Like, we don't teach logic in a practical sense in high schools. Like, we're not, we're not giving, we're not teaching real critical thinking skills. Even when critical thinking is a course, um, it's usually watered down useless stuff. It's not real skills that people need to be able to criticize the news. Uh, and, and not just criticize the news, but 
tell the difference between reliable and unreliable news rather than just rejecting it all. Like that's which is worse. Right? Calling everything fake news is worse because now you're cutting yourself off from actual information that you need access to to form your beliefs and make decisions. So you have to be able to just determine what is good news and what is bad news. Are we giving anyone those skills? Um, some countries are. Like Finland has a whole educational program in its schools that teach uh, students how to discern reliable from unreliable news sources and information and stuff. Um, we need more of that here, but people aren't being given that. And if you don't go looking for it, you might not run into it uh, much online. You might run into people talking about fallacies and accusing you of making them, but it'll just make you angry. And you go, oh, you're just using the word fallacy, and you just dismiss it and walk away. You don't actually sit and go, well, what's this fallacy thing you're talking about? How does that work? I should take this seriously. Maybe I should learn about it. Few, few people actually react that way and actually teach themselves. Uh, and we aren't teaching them as a society, so we get stuck where we are with, uh, with people who are bad thinkers but are so overconfident in their thinking that they refuse to accept anyone telling them that they're bad thinkers, and consequently they remain bad thinkers and never escape uh, that hall of mirrors. Mm. Well, there you go. <laughs> On that depressing note, um, so, so, so where do people send all their hate mail to? <laughs> uh, well, all things Richard Carrier you can find at, through my website at richardcarrier.info.info. Um, you can find my Twitter feed there, my Facebook feed, um, even my email address. Uh, and um, also, uh, you can find anything else about me. So, like all, all my books, my curriculum vitae, my um, I teach uh, online courses every month. So, if you want, if you're interested in uh, in both philosophy and ancient history, so people are interested in that, they can find that through my site. Uh, I write articles regularly on both philosophy, history, and also politics and society. Um, so uh, anything you want to know about me or pursue uh, in my work or contact me, you can all get it through richardcarrier.info. Fantastic. And they can also put their one-star reviews on <laughs> there. Are, there's no place to put one-star reviews, but uh, if, you, if, you write, if you write comments that actually say something, like, you know, actually, like, like give examples of, like, if you're going to make a point and you give examples, um, even if it's critical, uh, your comment will get published usually. Like, there's, uh, so if you just go up there and insult me, then no, I'm not going to publish your comment. But, uh, but if you go in there and, like, try to make a reasoned argument, even, you know, no matter how uh, against me it is, um, I will publish it and, and respond to it usually uh, on my uh, blog comments. If you, you f please find an article relevant to the subject, though. I often find people will, uh, will, re will read an article on, you know, I'll, I'll talk about, like, uh, nuclear power, uh, you know, environmentalism of a nuclear power, and then they'll, in there will be like an, uh, an ar angry argument about Jesus, and I'm like, this is not... <laughs> well, yeah, just, so so people, just so people don't get the wrong idea, I was reading your negative reviews, but just to give the percentages, 3% of your reviews are one star, 80% are five star, so, so the book is highly recommended by, by most people who read it. It's good. It's, yeah, that's, it's good the judgment's been crowdsourced enough that, uh, that we have that. But, but thank you. Thank you for pointing that out, yes. Well, and that's the point, the ones that read it. Right, yeah. yeah. You know. Wow. Well, well, again, thank you very much. It's always been good having you on, and uh, certainly uh, I could listen to you forever. Um, so <laughs> we, we recommend it. We'll have your website linked up and, of course, your books on our website as well. So our guest, Richard Carrier, thank you. Thank you. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, 
Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.